You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 100 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Ethics and tax. We don't really think much about ethics while we work, but ethical decisions by us and others are all around us. Michael Wellpole is a tax professor and the head of school of taxation and business law at UNSW. Michael teaches ethics as part of UNSW's tax planning and anti-avoidance course. So I asked Michael what all this is about. Here's Michael. That's a huge topic. Yeah, it is. I feel a bit too humble to say that I'm an expert on ethics and tax. But what we have here is, as part of our Master of Taxation, we have a course called Tax Planning and Anti-Avoidance, which somewhat unusually, I think, for a master's program, which all of which are usually very technical, we start off with an understanding of what are ethics generally, and then... And I think the students, when they start, think, oh, my God, what have I got myself into here? This is no chargeable hours and what I'm doing here. <laughs> um, but we start off with what are morals and then what are ethics. And then we take it quite swiftly into the ethics that apply in tax by looking at the accounting, the APESB, the Accounting Professional Ethical Standards Board Code. We look at the code in the Tax Agent Services Act. We Taza. don't, yeah, Taza in Taza, yes, yeah, so we look at the Taza code. With that background, we look at ethics and avoidance. And then from that perspective, we move to looking at our anti avoidance provisions. How avoidance works, then how avoidance, anti avoidance provisions work. And we end up having quite a deep look at part 4A. Do you go into the nitty gritty detail of how money laundering works? No, we don't do that. We don't ignore it. So there are readings and references to the Black Economy Part Task Force and so on. But we recognize that, of course, the division between evasion, which is where your black economy is, avoidance, which is sitting in the middle. Avoidance, I think, has become an Australia code for something that falls foul of Part 4A or a similar anti-avoidance measure. And then tax planning, which is regarded as far more innocent and understandable and everyone does it and you're silly if you don't. What we do do is we explore where a tax practitioner sits in terms of their clients and what advice they must give because I think it's sometimes not readily appreciated, certainly by the general public, until they're actually the one who has the problem in the conversation with their accountant. I think they think that all, all tax avoidance is bad and it's cheating when, of course, we and presumably your listeners know that's not the case. You actually can be sued for malpractice if you do not give your client advice that minimizes their tax. If you put them in a position where they're paying more tax than they should, you'll be sued. And there are cases where that's probably the most famous current one is the John Simons Aussie Home Loans shop front and his lawyers whom he sued because they gave advice which cost him tax that he needn't have paid. I said, do you know in what area? Uh, it was a financing transaction, and I think the finance was being used to renovate his stately home on the Harbour Foreshore in Sydney. 
And was the advice they didn't give, was that advice to do something legally? Oh, yes, it was, yeah. Yes, all legally. Yeah, but I think that's the dividing line. If you don't give advice that saves tax legally, then you can be sued. But if you don't give advice that is about saving tax illegally, then you can't be sued. Of course, that's right. If you're not obliged to teach your clients how to cheat, that is just absolutely not permitted. And, of course, some people do get into trouble on that front too. But my point is that certainly as a practitioner, I think you have to settle in your own mind, what advice do I give and where is the line and how far will I not allow a client to push me? And you've probably heard of it. People say, well, I fired that client because they were dishonest and you know your client is dishonest. You cannot participate in any way in their dishonesty or facilitate it. You have to break that relationship. On the other hand, if you think your client is doing something that is illegal but that you read as distasteful or immoral, then you have to decide whether you are going to serve your client's needs as you are ethically required to do or separate from your client or even separate from the profession. David Russell QC and I'm trying to remember who the other authors are. I think Gil Levy might might be who's a tax practitioner in Sydney, might have been one of the authors. They produced a work for the Confederation Fiscal European where they were looking at taxpayer charters. And there's a section in that book of their examination of the the need for taxpayer charters where Russell makes the point that if you are at a point where you are uncomfortable with what your client is doing, but it's illegal, you've got a problem because it is not for you to make a moral decision. It's your client's morals. You adhere to your duties, but it's your client who makes the moral decision. So if you think that saving tax is depriving the education system or health system of dollars and that you don't want to help your client save tax, he says you've got to get out of the business. You can't make a moral decision for them. Your obligation is to serve them legally, whatever the law says. So there's some tough decisions to be made from time to time in terms of what you advise you should or should not be giving. If you're working in the big corporate world, maybe the line is more black and white. I think it's very, very grey in the small practice area. Yes. Other jurisdictions don't have this problem because they have a wholly and exclusively rule where the deduction has got to be wholly and exclusively or the production of the income. Yes, exactly. It's especially mm. the expenses that are partly business and partly, and partly private. private. It's impossible to say, yes, no, your 90% claim of internet expenses mm. is wrong. It's impossible to say that there's a strong gut feeling that it is wrong, but it's impossible to say. Yeah. So you might be right about that fringe grey area, but certainly you heard the commissioner say, and, and he was speaking to the National Tax Convention earlier this year, the Tax Institute National Tax Convention. He pointed out that they had done some focus group work and done some examination of returns, and they found that there was a very, very, very high proportion of incorrect work-related deduction claims being made by tax agents, not by taxpayers, whose fault that is, will leave by tax agents. And in one of the focus groups, he had tax agents saying things like, if you don't claim the $300 work-related deductions for your clients, you're not worth being a tax agent. His view, and you might think, oh, this is a, a bit strict, his view is, The starting point is, did your client incur such expenditure? 
And only when you are satisfied that they incurred such expenditure do you assist them in claiming the $300 unidentified expenditure. But they must have incurred it first. And he thought that was a step that that tax agent had missed in the advice they were giving to clients. A very common approach is also saying the client will sign that they can substantiate every expense. So I just take everything at face value. That's a tricky one. If you look at the TASA there are papers that the Tax Practitioners Board have produced in terms of their understanding of the TASA code and what they expect of tax agents in adhering to the code. And one of those is about checking deductions. And there is an expectation in the code that if you are not confident about the claim that your client is making, there is an obligation on you to check it. There's not an obligation on you to audit the client or investigate or anything like that. But if you're at all unsure whether the claim is legitimate, you are actually expected to question the client. There have been no cases on this yet. Nobody's had to face an inquiry and those why did you allow your client to do this? But it can't be far off. If a tax practitioner has a client that it turns out is very active in the cash business and doesn't declare these cash sales. The only action is to withdraw from that client. There is no obligation to then report the client. Uh, certainly, certainly not. Unless you're aware of a crime, I think there might be an obligation there. But if it's based on suspicion, I think it's just an end of that relationship, unless you're happy to participate in that relationship or even go in with your shining sword and educate the client. Yeah, that would be a brave accountant who does that. But dodgy clients are worth getting rid of, crude way of putting it. Then you go more into yeah. the nitty-gritty detail of tax evasion in Part 4A, etc. Yeah, as I say, less tax evasion because we recognise that tax evasion exists and that tax evasion is a crime. Yeah, and we tax go... evasion isn't really a, a grey area because it's just yeah, clear-cut yeah, tax evasion. It's, yeah. So it's the avoidance really it's, it's where the, the grey area is. It's the avoidance. And we explore things like what kind of structuring does Part 4A not apply to? And we've come across recently a couple of instances where Part 4A wouldn't work because if you look at the strict analysis of what is a benefit in Part 4A. There are some tax benefits that do not relate to not earning income that would otherwise have been earned or creating deductions that would not otherwise have been created, but for your scheme, etc. So, so there are some gaps there. So you identified some loopholes, which your students, if they were inclined that way... <laughs> Could go and Yeah, uh... well, yes. Um, I mean, they're, they're very fact-specific and they are really quite narrow. And the one loophole which we identify is actually safeguarded by a criminal penalty. So that's why Part 4A doesn't apply, because if you breach it, it's not a Part 4A question, it's criminal penalty points and penalties under the tax laws. But at least through our course, people are made aware that their horizon is broadened and they're aware, well, hang on, not, not everything is subject to Part 4A. Welcome back. Ethics is a huge topic and something that affects us all. In the next episode, episode 101, Michael Welpole will talk about the Master of Taxation program, MTEX. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>